chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21. I'll read the first nine verses. And then our text I'm going to turn to later in John 3. Children, this is a story that took place with the children of Israel. Remember, the children of Israel in the Old Testament were God's people, his church in the Old Testament. And he had brought them out of Egypt, the house of bondage. And they had now been traveling through the wilderness and they were called of God to go into the land that he had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the land of Canaan. And when they got there, of course, there were enemies who they needed to defeat. And this whole picture of the Old Testament, they experienced that in reality. And this is also, in some ways, we could say our own experience today as well. We are the church of the New Testament. We, if we know the Lord Jesus Christ and have turned from sin, we've been called out of Egypt, our sin, and now called to conquer the enemies, the sin that still remains in us and in this world. But there's problems. And you remember many of the children of Israel often complained while they were in the wilderness. And here's an occasion, again, where the people complained. Numbers 21, when the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in Negeb, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Athram, he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. And Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, if you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. And the Lord heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites, and they devoted them and their cities to destruction. So the name of the place was called Hormah. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Remember, they're talking about the manna that God had rained down on them to nourish them every day. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Well, beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, we live in a world 
in which there is much confusion today. Everybody knows it. And so do we. If we read the news, if we dig a little deeper into what may be happening behind the scenes, often there are lies. There is confusion. There is discord. There are war and threatenings of war everywhere. How are we to live? Jesus, of course, was born into a world that was filled with similar realities. The people of God had been taken over by Rome. They were serving under occupied territories. There was confusion. There were lies. The religious leaders and religious people of the day were not really so religious after all. Even as we will see this morning, Nicodemus didn't even understand what it meant to serve the Lord out of a new heart. And so Jesus here is speaking to the people of Israel, the church of God, about the need to be born again. And we often think of those who are doing mission work and those who are doing uh, the work of bringing the gospel to many people. What we need to recognize, however, we need to hear the gospel in the church afresh every day, every week again. It's ever fresh and ever new and ever necessary. And so what Jesus is going to do in this passage as he's talking to this rabbi, this religious leader of the Jews, Nicodemus, he's going to bring him back to this Old Testament passage we read from Numbers 21. And he's going to use it as an illustration of what we need, what Nicodemus needed, what we and our children need, and what this world needs today. It's a very simple story, and yet a profound one. And so I want you to turn to John 3 a moment, and I want to read verses 14 and 15. You know what verse 16 is. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. We, we know that. But that text only comes after what Jesus has said in verses 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him may have eternal life. So I want to look at this this morning with God's help with the theme of Christ lifted up with three things. First of all, the reason. Why did Jesus need to be lifted up? What does that mean? What's the reason? Second, <clears throat> what's the manner? How did this happen? What's taking place there when he's lifted up? And then third, we're going to look at the result. What's the result of Jesus being lifted up? Well, children, you can see clearly this picture of the children of Israel going through the wilderness. Often, God brought the children of Israel into places of difficulty and trial. You know, we naturally want to run away from trials and difficulties. It's just our nature. We don't like suffering. We don't like to face difficulty. We don't like to face challenge and, and pain and even death. 
And many times the Lord brings his people Israel into difficulty. Brings them, for example, to an impasse. The Egyptian army is behind them. The Red Sea is before them. What are they going to do? They have nowhere to turn. They cry out to the Lord. He delivers. They praise him with Moses and Miriam. They go on further into the wilderness. There's no water to drink. And you can go through the whole history of the children of Israel seeing time and again God allows or brings even difficulty and challenge so that the people would trust him. But often they didn't. And isn't that true even today? Individually, we find this same challenge. As a church, the New Testament church, we find the same challenge locally or even more broadly, the church of God in this world. And so what will God do? He brings challenge, he brings difficulty so that he refines us, he causes us to forsake all the things of this world that we think we're going to find hope in and find confidence in and, and trust in and turn to him alone. That's what he's doing. That's what's happening here in this chapter of Numbers 21. Remember, they had promised the Lord that if he would deliver them now from this victory that the Canaanites seemed to have and had captured some of their soldiers, they said, if you bring back these soldiers and give us the victory, we promise we will destroy all the enemy cities. I want you to think back if you have come to faith in Christ and those moments in which you truly understood what it meant to forsake sin, to repent of sin, and to surrender your whole heart to Christ. You wanted nothing to do with sin. Nothing. Oh, it may have been a process, it may have been over a period of time, it may have been instantaneous, whatever it was, but you came to hate sin. Because your God, your Savior, hates sin. But what we find here is that they made this promise. We will go and destroy all the cities. And days Maybe hours later, they're in difficulty again. They're in trouble again. And instead of turning to the Lord who had rescued them and saved them from the hand of the Canaanites, they begin to grumble and complain to God and to Moses. Do you know that by experience in your life? Complaints and not understanding God's way that he may be leading you or the difficulties that he's allowing to come into your life. Notice what they said against God, the scriptures say, and Moses. Before, it seemed they only often complained to Moses who was the intermediary between God and the people. But here it was, the people held back nothing. God, why did you bring us here? It's more pleasant for us to have been in Egypt. Even though we were in slavery, we had enough to eat. We had water to drink. They complained to God and Moses. 
Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness, they said. For there's no bread, there's nothing to drink, and our soul loathes this manna. I hope we never get to the point, because manna signifies the daily provision of the word of God to us. I hope we never get to the point where we why do I have to do my devotions today? Why do I have to read the Bible today? I know what the gospel, I know what the Bible says. That's what the children of Israel were in essence doing. The children of Israel spake against God and Moses. And what happened? Children, you know. The Lord sent these fiery serpents, deadly serpents, snakes, extremely poisonous. We read of these snakes probably in Isaiah 14 and 30 as well. There it speaks about these serpents who could even fly. We don't know what exactly these serpents were, but they were very deadly. You got bit by one of these snakes and you were going to die. They were very dangerous. They were sent of the Lord. You can imagine the children of Israel who had witnessed so many blessings of God. Manna every day, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. They were led in the wilderness, water out of a rock. So many other miracles you, you can't even imagine that the people would have turned against God and complained with a little bit of trouble. But what about us? What about you? What about me? I was working on my Jeep the last couple of days trying to replace the whole front end and you have the control arm, a big heavy piece and it's bolted to the frame. My Jeep is a 20, uh, 2005, it's, it's old. And it was so rusted, the bolt was just completely locked and I beat it with a sledgehammer and wouldn't move. Finally, I had to take out the sawzall and just cut on both sides and finally could get it free. And sometimes our hearts are so hard, so frozen, so stuck. All the lubrication that I put on it didn't do anything. We need the old cut out. And we need a new. That's what is being presented to us here in this passage. We all have what is presented here because this serpent that is biting, if you will, these people and the venom is flowing through the veins of these people and causing death is nothing more than a picture of what sin does to us. Oh, we sin indeed. It's our own hearts. It's our own lives. It's our own choices. But sin is the scriptures Paul talks about in Romans, sin is causing, if you will, it's working in us death. We see death all around us. We, we see it in all what's happening in Israel. We, we see what's happened over the last few years. The increase of death rate in the whole world is, is moving up. Various reasons, whatever that might be. But death is all around us. Why? Because of sin. 
Now in Israel, there may have been some people who have been bitten by many different snakes. Whatever the case may have been, their wounds may have been more severe than any other. But if you were bitten but once even, you were going to die. And so have you ever realized this spiritual picture, this spiritual reality? You and I, every one of us, have been bitten by sin. By nature, the way we come into the world is bitten, sinful, sinners. Some of you, perhaps, have committed grievous sin. No one knows it, perhaps. If you think back to your youth and your childhood, considering your sins against the holy God, how is it any different than what the children of Israel were doing? Some of you imagine, perhaps, that yeah, such a great sinner, not like so many other people in this world, and so, like Nicodemus, you don't even understand. Why do I need... I don't have sin coursing through me. I, I'm not a sinner like other people. But Nicodemus didn't understand the heart of what Jesus was getting at. We see the effects of sin everywhere. We see it actually in our own hearts as well. And just as Israel had rejected God, were rebellious. That's our heart by nature. So do you know, have you come to understand that just as Israel had this venom and they were bit by the snake flowing through their body, the only thing they could look forward to was dying. And when you sin and when I sin, when anyone in this world sins, what's the end? Death. There's no return. There's no escape. Because any one sin, whatever that might be, against the holy God means we must suffer eternal death. There's no escape. We've been created in his image. We've been created to love God and to serve him and to rejoice in him and our lives demonstrate by nature we're no different than the children of Israel. There are many people today seeking all kinds of remedies to get back to God, to get in a right relationship to God. And no doubt the children of Israel were probably doing the same. Oh, I'm going to stop, put a tourniquet on. I'm going to do this to, to keep me from having the venom of this snake flowing through my body. But died they did at the end of the day. And there are so many who try to find remedies in this world. Some people try to drown it out with drugs and alcohol and pleasures of this world. They're trying to run. They're running from facing the reality we're bitten by sin. How does God see us? When it comes down to this passage in John, the greatest sin of all is when we do not look to the one lifted up. When we don't trust his words of promise. 
God had given to the children of Israel promise after promise. Remember, children, as they were traveling through this wilderness, what box were they carrying with them? Joseph's box. A box of dead bones. He made, Joseph had made the children of Israel. When you go, according to God's promise, back to the promised land, you take me with you. They had all kinds of evidences of God and and what God was doing, and they yet did not believe his words. And so I ask myself this morning, I ask you, God has given to his church in the New Testament all kinds of promises. And do we then, in the face of those promises and difficulties in relationship, in our family, in the church, in the world, what do we do with those difficulties? Do we trust his promise? Do we believe his word? Or do we try to find another way? Do we try to solve the problem ourselves? If there are any here this morning, if there are those who have never come to Jesus with the confession, I'm bitten with sin, I am full of sin, I have no worthiness, all I do every day is sin. There's a place and a remedy to go. And if you continue in this place where all you do is sin and you never come to Jesus Christ, it's lost forever. And so these people realize their predicament. They realize what trouble they were in. And they cried to the Lord and to Moses. They had nowhere else to go. I don't know what's going to be happening in the world in the coming days and weeks and months. It doesn't look like good things could happen. The church could be in serious difficulty of persecution and suffering. I don't know. But it may be the way in which God will have us to trust him more. But the temptation will be in the face of suffering, in the face of persecution, to do something else, to try something else. And the reminder of this passage this morning is that sin. Don't go there. Don't look to anywhere else but Jesus. He's our only hope. He can be our only help. The people cried again to Moses made confession to him, and he prayed for them. The solution of the people was, pray to the Lord to take away these serpents. That was their solution. And instead, God's going to give them his solution. His remedy. A remedy that's going to be a glorious picture of what Jesus himself, the Son of Man, is going to say. That that you saw back there in the Old Testament, that's really pointing to me. So what's the reason Christ needed to be lifted up? Sin. There's no other reason. Our sin. He was the perfect, sinless Lamb of God. 
He who knew no sin became this sinner, this like God was angry with these children of Israel because they complained to him and all the goodness he had given to them. God is rightly angry with us when we are living in sin, when we continue in sin. He's rightly, justly angry. He could condemn us forever. But what does he do instead? He puts his son there. In that place. That we deserve. And he takes us from that place of being bitten with sin. He himself becomes the one who is, if you will, bitten with the death of sin. And he gives to us his righteousness. That's why he needed to be lifted up. He says, as Moses lifted the serpent up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Well, that brings me to the second thing I want to look at this morning here. And that is the manner. Moses prayed for the people and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery brazen serpent and set it up on a high pole. On a pole. And we're not told whether Moses was carrying that pole as he walked through miles. There were, remember, hundreds of thousands of people here in the camp. And whether he set it up in the middle of the camp or walked around with it. We, we weren't told, but we are told that God said whoever looks at it, looks at this brazen serpent, would live. And Moses, in obedience to God, makes the serpent, puts it on a pole, and cries out to the people, look, look, and you will live. And Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, just like that, the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now some have taken this to mean it's the lifting up and proclaiming of the gospel. That's the lifting up of Christ. Others have said it's the lifting up of Christ on, on the cross that it's particularly talking about. Yet others have said it means when he's lifted up on high above all things in his glorified being now at the right hand of God. It doesn't really matter in some respects which of those it is or maybe something else. The whole idea is Jesus' focus is just as the brazen serpent was lifted up, so must I be lifted up that whoever looks at me, trusts me, believes in me, shall be saved, shall have everlasting life. When you were only expecting everlasting death. We know from other parts of the gospel that this lifting up refers particularly to his being lifted up on the cross. John 8, the same gospel, verse 28. Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. And I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And then in John 12, 20, uh, 32 and 33, He says, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This He said, signifying what death He should die. We're reminded here by Jesus himself that he has come down from glory. 
He's called here about himself the son of man. He's also the son of God. But he came as the son of God to join himself to our nature. The nature that has sinned, that's been bitten with sin. He's joined himself to our nature without sin. And yet he suffers the consequence, the penalty that sin deserved. He came down from heaven. He joined himself to our nature that he could give himself, could could surrender himself as the offering. He'll say, as it were, let me suffer the consequence of this bite of sin. I will Feel it. You, you can imagine these Israelites, the fiery serpents bit them and the pain must have been extreme in their bodies and they would swell up, we are told, and, and they would just waste away and die. But how much more the Son of Man, who when he was lifted up, he suffered, especially in those last hours when he stood before Pilate and Caiaphas and the soldiers mocked him and spit on him and plucked the hairs out of his beard and slapped him on the face and, and put a crown of thorns and nailed him to the cross. If you had lived in the day of Moses... And you were angry at God because things were not going well. And Moses lifted up this brazen serpent and said, Look, and you will live. Look, and you will live. Would you have looked? Would you have believed such a foolish thing? Look at the same image of the serpents that were crawling around on the ground or flying around, whatever they were. And that same image was there on the pole and it's made of bronze. You're going to look at it, you're going to live? You know what, if you didn't think you were bitten or you didn't think you were dying, I suppose you probably wouldn't look. And the same is true today. There are many who don't believe what I set forth in point one. They want to hear that. If you don't want to hear that and you don't believe it's true about you, then why do you need point two? Why do you need Jesus? Why do we need a Savior? But whether we've been bitten once or we've committed this sin or that sin or whatever sin, however much our sin may have been, it didn't matter. Moses said, look to the lifted up serpent. You will live. Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent, So must I, the Son of Man, be lifted up. And whoever believes in Him, whoever looks to Him, shall have eternal life. You know, there may have been those in Israel who were both hearing the same words of Moses. Some looked to the serpent and probably some didn't. And the same is true today in the hearing of the gospel. We need to hear this message whether we have never entered into Jesus Christ by saving faith or whether we have entered in and we struggle with remaining sin and corruption. We need to hear the gospel again every day. Look to Christ. Look to Him. He is our salvation. He is the only remedy that God has provided. 
Anyone who looked at the serpent in the day of Moses was immediately healed. And there are sinners today, I, I've spoken to them, who have sinned grievously, who, who carry this burden and this weight with them, and they just don't know where to go. They don't even know who to talk to. They're so weighed down. What this passage is telling us is the simplicity of the gospel is why are you carrying your burden alone? How do you imagine to go to God with the guilt of your sin and think that somehow, some way, in your way, it's going to be relieved when God has said, this is my way. This is the only way. Look to my son. Look to Jesus. This is the method. This is the manner that God himself prescribed. They couldn't create their own little fake image that Moses, like Moses, made and, and look to that and be saved. Wouldn't work. It was the one remedy. God told Moses, make this fiery brazen serpent and put it on a pole. Whoever looks will live. It was God's provision. God's way. Kelvin says, in order, therefore, that they might perceive themselves to be rescued from death by the mere grace of God alone, a mode of preservation was chosen so disconcordant or out of whack with human reason as to be almost a subject for laughter. So ridiculous, seemingly, to human reasoning to look at a brazen serpent when you're bitten by a snake that looks like that thing hanging up, that you'd be alive, that you'd live. It's laughable. To the eyes of unbelief. And so is the gospel. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came down from heaven to this earth... And he himself was lifted up on the cross. He was crucified. He suffered in the place of sinners so that whoever, whoever comes to him. No, we don't go to him physically. We, we're talking here spiritually. This whole analogy is our spiritual heart, our, our understanding and our thoughts and our, and our hearts. We pray to God. We look to Jesus who is presented here in the gospel, in this message. We believe that Jesus, in time, came down from heaven, actually walked in the streets of Jerusalem, actually was put outside the city on Golgotha's hill, actually was lifted up on a cross, actually suffered the wrath of God there, and died in the place of sinners. And now whoever looks to him, whoever cries out to him and trusts him and clings, as it were, to him and to the promise, whoever believes in me, whoever trusts in me, has eternal life. That is the gospel. This is the gospel, a crucified Jesus that is to be proclaimed throughout the world. And if you have come to him and you have seen the bite of sin that you had through the serpent and you have repented of that sin and he's made you whole, how could you not talk about him? 
How can you not love him? How can you not want to spend every moment of our lives in gratitude to him? And to tell everyone else about this one who is lifted up. Who's also bitten by sin. And either doesn't know it, doesn't believe it, or is thinking their past hope of being saved. It all seems so contrary to human wisdom. But what a fitting parallel here. The Israelite was stung by the serpent and now the serpent lifted up, they are healed and so in salvation. By man, sin came into the world, the first Adam. And by man, the second Adam, comes life. Because he takes the place of the first. Everyone who looks to Jesus, everyone who trusts his word in the gospel, whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast them out. No matter what your sin has been, dear friend, no matter how deep this venom is coursing through our body, no matter how much sin remains in your heart, if you go to Christ, if you come to him, he will not cast you out and you look to him, you have eternal life. In Israel, they had to look with the bodily eye to, to see this brazen serpent lifted up. We don't, we don't lift up our eye. We don't go to Jerusalem outside the city there and, and look up to some kind of, there isn't any crosses there on the hill, but if there were, look to that. No, by faith, by faith, we believe, we trust that what Jesus said is true. That he is the son of man who is lifted up and whoever believes in him will have eternal life. This method of God, the only way of God, is to the unbelieving heart foolishness. It's a stumbling block to the Jews and to the Greeks' foolishness. But by faith, when we are made alive through the work of the Holy Spirit, seeing our sin and we flee to Christ, we believe in him, we have life. One simple look. It didn't matter whether you were right next to the pole where Moses lifted up or you were a mile, as it were, on the outside of the camp looking up at this serpent. Wherever you were, you could barely see it. You could barely believe it. You could barely lay hold of it. You'd be healed. The same is true spiritually. One look, however weak and trembling, we have eternal life. I want you to consider for a moment the one who is lifted up. Jesus. Who was he? The father's son. Who was ever with his father in his bosom from all eternity. Loved of the father. And in eternity, he agreed in time to, to come down to earth. He, to give himself over unto this curse of death. To humble himself. And to taste the death of the cross. 
And so I'm asking you this morning, for the first time or again, lift up your eye, the spiritual eye of your soul, and look to Jesus. Believe his word. Trust his promise. There hangs a man. There's none like him. He's without sin, and yet he's dying. Why? Because of the sin of those who trust him being laid on him. Look at his feet, pierced with the nails, but the same feet that was walking down the road that saw a blind man, Bartimaeus, who cried out, Son of David, have mercy. And he stops. Look at those hands. Children, those hands of Jesus that were outspread and nailed to the cross were the same hands that while he lived embraced the little children and pressed them to his heart. He loved them. And his side, pierced with a spear. A side that John the Apostle laid on his bosom at the Last Supper. Where are you looking? Where are you trying to find a remedy for your sin? There's nowhere to go but to Jesus. What are you doing? What are you resting on? Church membership? Because you were baptized? What's your foundation? Is it this only remedy? Jesus, who was lifted up. And what's the result? Our, our last thought this morning. What's the result of Jesus being lifted up? Well, we know the result here in Moses. When he lifted up the serpent, any who looked, we read, were healed. Anyone, everyone, no exceptions. And the same is true also in regard to the gospel. Can you imagine for a moment if anyone in the camp there in Moses it, it, it was bitten by a snake, they're dying, they're being swollen in pain, fever, whatever it was, and they're looking and they're looking and they say, I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm looking, nothing's happening. Imagine what that would do to the rest of the people. It doesn't do any good to look. There are some who have said, well, I've tried Jesus, didn't work for me. Doesn't help me out in my problems. The problem is they've not looked. They've not surrendered. They've not come as one who is truly guilty and one who needs Jesus alone. They're resting on other things beside Jesus. Because any who looked, lived. And Jesus says, whoever believes in him will, may, will have eternal life. Any and all who hear the gospel and come to Jesus, trusting in him alone, have eternal life. Now maybe to draw a little bit of an analogy here, there may have been those in Israel who looked and they lived and went about their day and maybe got bit again. 
They will look again. They need to continually look at the cross. And so it is with the gospel. We don't need to be saved again when we look to Christ. We've been saved once for all. We're justified before God. But remaining flesh and sin is in us. We need to continually be looking and looking and looking at the cross, at Jesus. Every day fresh and every day anew. This is the grace, the marvelous grace of our God. We need to have an increase in our understanding and our knowledge of our appreciation, of our devotion, of our love to Jesus for what he's done. When you hear the gospel this morning of Jesus being lifted up and drawing all men unto him, does that warm your heart? Stir your affections? So that you want everyone around you to know him and to love him. And to not just go on through life as if everything's okay, don't have problems. If we don't deal with sin, we don't need a savior. He doesn't mean much to us. But if we've ever sensed our being bitten by sin, our need for a savior because we're dying, we're dying. And we've tasted life and we know that in Christ there is eternal life and salvation to be had. Why would we not speak to others? In the gospel we're not told, uh, look, look to the minister. We're not told to pray for this or that thing to happen. We're not told to, to do this and to do that. We're told simply look to him. Trust him. Believe his word. And the result, Jesus says, of him being lifted up is he is going to draw men unto himself. This is the very simplicity of the gospel. No matter if you're the youngest child here, hardly understands what, what was being said this morning. But you know, when Moses lifted up this brazen serpent, this brass figure that he formed, and he put it on a pole, and anybody who was bit in Israel and looked to that wouldn't die. They'd be healed. Now that is true also in our hearts. When Jesus is lifted up, when Jesus suffered and died, and we look to him, we trust him, and even though there's problems in our life, even though there's difficulty, even though we fight against sin, he can help us. He will help us. But he wants us to look to him, trust him, believe his words of promise. There was a parable, I close with this, of Jesus in the wedding feast. He sent his servants to call those who were bidden to the wedding. And they would not come. Again he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which were bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my ox and fatlings are killed. All things are ready. Come to the marriage. Well, they made light of it. They went their way, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants and treated them spitefully and slew them. But when the king heard of that, he was wroth. He sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and burnt up their city. And then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden are not worthy. Go into the highway, and as many as you find, bid to come to the marriage. And so his servants went to the highway and gathered as many as they found, both bad and good. And the wedding was furnished with guests. He will have a full house. The marriage feast of Jesus and his bride 
is being prepared, there's still room. If you have not entered in, taken heed to the invitation of the wedding, come now. And if you know of anyone who you love, in your family, at your work, like Jesus says here, go into the highway and gather them in and bring this message that they may sit at the marriage feast of Jesus. Let's pray. Merciful and gracious God, a very simple message indeed that takes faith to believe. Lord, we need then this faith as a gift given freely to any who ask. So we ask, Lord, fill us with faith. Fill us with your Holy Spirit that we with the eye of faith would believe your word of promise. Whoever looks unto Jesus has eternal life, has passed from condemnation into life eternal. And may we then rejoice and live in light of this truth day by day that our lips would be seasoned with this grace to speak to others as well about it. Bless us now the rest of today as well. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.